When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a rather grey Bay Area at the moment. Today is the changing of the guard. We have our supply teachers in. We have a first-time contributor, Mila Atmos, in uh, New York, and she's from the Future Hindsight podcast. And um, I met her in Boston last year and we had a little bit of a chat and we've become uh, WhatsApp friends ever since. And we have returning founder contributor to the podcast, Mick Wright in Limehouse in London, in England. Say hello, folks. Hello, folks. Hey. Hello. In a week that has seen Tate Britain defend its job ad for a 40k head of coffee, which pays 5k more than a position for a curator, we ask, where is the soul of the Republican Party? In other news, a senior Republican senator says President Donald Trump's Senate impeachment trial could end on Friday, with the president being acquitted. John Barrazzo predicted that the Senate would vote on late Friday to settle the debate over witnesses and move to either acquit or convict Trump. Some other Republican senators have echoed Barrazzo's comments, saying the ongoing Q&A session could only last through Thursday. Democrats have been seeking support of at least four Republican senators to vote in favor of calling witnesses. The Senate is expected to acquit Trump and leave him in office, but allowing witnesses such as his former national security advisor john bolton could seriously affect the president's re-election bid democrats say there would be no way to have a fair trial without witnesses at Mila, president trump has proven himself to be completely self-serving he has little love or history with the republican party but what kind of party will he leave in his wake when he goes whether it's this year or in 2024 That's a good question. So it depends on what happens with uh, the trial in the Senate. I think that uh, as far as I can tell, he has strengthened the 
Republican Party considerably because he has basically given them the things that they want, right? So, for example, they now have lower taxes and uh, they are clearly going to give uh, more opportunities to fossil fuel industries. They are also actively rolling back abortion rights in certain states where they have had some successes. And so all of the things that the base want, they have gotten through this president. And I think that's really important to remember. And I think that's one of the reasons they stick to him. Is this what the base wants or what uh, Republican Party donors want, Mick? Seems to me that um, in terms of truly what the base of Republican Party wants, Trump, other than saying things like build a wall, um, hasn't really given them anything too tangible in the last three years. If you listen uh, to Vox Pops with people, you know, in uh, uh, you know who voted Trump and, and intend to vote Trump again, they have they're of the belief that he has given them things that they want. It, it, it you know, in some ways, it reminds me of how um, Russians talk about Putin. In a sense, like he hasn't in reality given them that much putin's given them very little in russia but there's mm. a sense of um uh, this this type of person who thinks that he has made the country stronger or who he's done things that make me feel proud in kind of abstract ways and it seems to be that there's quite a lot of people who voted trump who would vote trump again who have that kind of feeling you know that that, that he sort of there's this kind of abstract make make America great again thing. It, it, in their minds, he sort of has done that, uh, whether or not he has. And I think, but the thing is, I think there's always been, uh, for the past, you know, 20, 30 years, there's been a, a, a real um, gap between what the Republican Party establishment is about and wants and what it tells its base that it's about and wants. So I don't think Trump's that different in some ways. I think Trump is not that different to Tea Party Republicans before that, you know, in the sense of of uh, appealing to some kind of, you know, blue collar down home, um, you know, idea while actually like living in a very elite bubble, um, you know, as much, if not more so than any of the Democrats that they would like to sort of define as that. I think that's 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 pretty fair. Uh, Mila, coming back to you, uh, Jay Sekulow, who's been defending the president during the impeachment trial, has said that even if Trump is guilty of coercing Ukraine for political favours, such conduct would not be impeachable. If so, uh, what conduct, if any, would be deemed to be impeachable by the head of the executive of the United States? Well, um, if you go by Jade Sekulow's logic, then really nothing is impeachable and that if you are the executive, then you are untouchable. And I think this is maybe the part where Republicans are not 100 percent in control of their own message, because if that is really accurate. Right. So if we had, for example, a Democratic president that they want to impeach for doing impeachable offenses, to be fair, like let's call it something really bad that this person has done. Uh, then you can't impeach that same person because then this person can also claim, oh, I have executive privilege and I can do whatever I want as the executive because essentially I'm above the law because we have decided during Trump's impeachment trial that that is totally acceptable. So I think this is a very dangerous ground, but I'm not quite sure that people are really catching on to that. Um, Is this a misdemeanor 
Mick, or is there something more? And surely that's the reason why it was, it's high crimes and misdemeanours. So something doesn't have to fall to the level of actually being totally criminal. But yeah, you can have a little bit of mischief. It's called a misdemeanor. And that in and of itself is impeachable. Are Republicans forgetting about that? And then being blind to the consequences, as Mila has kind of hinted at, is that basically uh, you'll have executive overreach then. Uh, Presidents can do anything. Well, it's, you know, effectively, I I think Mila's right, you know, effectively what the Republicans are sort of arguing for is not a presidency, but a monarchy. They're they're sort of arguing that the president is a king um, and the king's writ is, is, um, you know, un, uh, you know, what the king says is law, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or it's like, like, or like, you know, Trump is the Pope somehow and is, you know, it has this infallibility. infallibility. Is, it like a, is it a high crime? Well, yeah, it is. Because if you use state, if you're using the state power of the United States, the, 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 the power of the government in order to um, eff- effectively extort a foreign government, I, it couldn't be more so. But then again, American foreign, foreign policy since time immemorial has pretty much been fun- fundamentally built on using American power to extort other nations. So that's not, that's not that wild either. It's just that Trump does it in a way that's far more blatant than presidents that have come before him. But and, it's always totally for personal means that that's the thing totally for personal means. Yeah. And you know, but when, but, but we have seen presidents use, um, the apparatus of state power for personal means in the past. If you look at look at the way um, Clinton used airstrikes you, during during his impeachment, you know that's very you know there are there are previous times that 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 um, presidents have have done things that are overreaching. I just think that the difference is that uh, there's a level of politesse that's missing from Trump uh, that some of previous commanders in chief have sort of laid over their own misdemeanors. Mila, a two thirds majority in the Senate is required to remove Trump from office with Republicans holding a 53 to 47 majority in the Senate. Removal remains very highly unlikely, regardless of whether Dems can muster enough votes for witnesses to be called. According to the latest Quinnipiac poll, 75% of voters believe witnesses should be called and allowed in the trial. Won't this weaken Republican senators who are up for re-election in 2020 with moderate voters? And in another kind of development on Wednesday, moderate Republican Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado announced he would vote against any attempt to call new witnesses. Um, Mila, answer that question for us. Give us some kind of sense of why is it that uh, the Republican senators are just so hell-bent against even having witnesses, considering that some of them are up for re-election in November? Well, this, I think, comes puts together the point that you made earlier about the establishment and maybe the moneyed interests and uh, what I said about the Republican powers enjoying the things that they want, for example, lower taxes, making abortions illegal. And so let's say if you are Cory Gardner, I don't know who his biggest donors are, mm-hmm. but uh, probably some of the biggest donors are people like the Koch brothers or equivalent, right? And so, you know, they want to continue this kind of Senate where they have the advantage. And uh, 
there is no reason for him to vote otherwise. Even if uh, potentially it's going to be that short-sighted that you could see yourself being uh, voted out uh, by moderates, moderates in Colorado. And Colorado definitely is a purple state. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think ex he's extremely vulnerable. So I don't really know <laughs> what his uh, personal calculus is. But, uh, you know, he's there to represent a specific point of view and specific people in Colorado with those vested interests. So uh, I think it'll be really hard for him to hang on to a seat. I think uh, the, as far as I understand, uh, the challenger Hickenlooper is very popular, so he may well lose his position. But mm -hmm. it's not only about losing a Senate seat. It's also what he wants to do afterwards, right? So let's say he wants to continue to be a viable Republican candidate for another office in the future. Within the Republican Party, somebody is going to say, ah, well, you voted against Trump at that time. So they're going to make sure that people remember. And we should remember that, too. I mean, I think Democrats should employ that tactic and say, this person was anti-democracy and anti-constitution, and we should vote him out. But on the other side, Republicans are also saying, hmm, this person broke rank and didn't stick with his party. So... Trump is going to cast a long shadow over the Republican Party, regardless, um, let's say, regardless of whether he gets voted out in November, you say that people, that Republicans will still be enthralled to the memory of Trump uh, in that period where there would be a new Democratic president. Again to you, Mila. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know if, well, if the Democrats will win in November, because if the president is acquitted, which is mm -hmm. uh, more likely than not, given uh, that the Senate is under Republican control, as you just said, then basically, to your earlier point about Sekulow, then the president is allowed to do whatever he wants. And he can just steal the election if he doesn't win it outright, right? So he's going to make sure and, uh, and do whatever he wants. And if that is the case, then I think democracy, American democracy is essentially dead. And so... Uh, whatever the Republican Party may or may not be after, let's say, a Trump victory, I think the country will have fundamentally changed. And I think we need to rethink whether democracy is even really a real thing anymore in the United States, if that happens. Uh, Mick, just to continue on with that thought, um, if the Senate can't run the vaguest level of oversight over a sitting Republican president, um, where will that leave? I know we kind of talked about this before and you said it, it's kind of monarchy, uh, but where does this leave the co-branches government or theory of US politics? You know, is it is this just basically, as Mila says, untrammeled uh, executive power? You can kind of forget any kind of balance between the, the other kind of um, branches of government, full stop. And really... Uh, the Republicans are setting themselves up for a massive constitutional crisis, um, if not immediately, at least further down the road. And actually, this is an unraveling of the U.S. Constitution. It's hell and damnation for the U.S. Um, unless they at least have some veneer of oversight into this president's goings on vis-a-vis -vis, uh, pressuring the Ukraine and withholding military aid. Um. Was a lot in that, wasn't there? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think he's going to win in November. So that's something. Um, I don't want him to, obviously, but I think he is going to win. Because mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think that the Democrats uh, can stop pissing all over their own shoes. Um, 
do I think? Well, do I think? I, I I guess I guess the thing is, um, yeah, it's going to be hugely damaging. But it's already been hugely constitutionally damaging, hasn't it? The Trump presidency's been damaging, and it's damaging at a lower court level. You know, it's damaging at uh, it's damaging with the way that he he you know when he was elected he didn't fill a lot of positions when he should have it's damaging because the court system is being changed fundamentally at like root and root and branch levels filling in um people who have the kind of mindset that he has so yeah it's it's fundamentally going to be damaged but can it be fixed and reborn i think the um, you know the constitutional system has shown itself to be incredibly resilient in ways that other some other governmental systems across the world haven't um constitution is an incredible document uh so i think it would be another four years of serious damage but maybe not maybe you get to the next midterms after and um you know the house or senate flips and then you do see trump actually get impeached during the second term because you know the votes are there uh, potentially if uh you know if the if the economy tanks in ways that it could do and i think it might do that could that could finally chip away some of the people who think he's so great it's um it's a bit crystal it's kind of crystal ball magic eight ball stuff though isn't it Probably is, probably is. I mean, let's have the last word uh, with you. Uh, Mick has uh, told us that he believes that Trump will win in November because the Democrats are pissing on their own shoes. Um, who's the biggest pisser and who's got the best shoes in the Democratic runners and riders? Because we, we haven't heard you um, in the last few months whilst we've been talking about the Democratic runners and riders. So I know that you had a penchant for somebody who's uh, being kicked out of the race or removed himself from the race. But um, number one, do you believe that Democrats uh, will throw away this election? Then number two, um, who do you fancy in terms of uh, the Democratic uh, presidential nominee to go up against President Trump in November? Well, I think um, for starters, all the polls are showing that a Democrat will win the popular vote. So I don't want to belittle that. It may be that the Democrat might not win the Electoral College. However, just like last time, Trump is going to lose the popular vote. And I think that's important to remember. And uh, the reason why Trump went after Biden is because Biden is showing to be ahead of him in the polls in swing states. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm not a huge fan of Biden's, but I think at this point, if the polls are right, uh, and I don't know if they are, because I have, you know, I don't think polls are really scientifically sound. Most of the most of the polls are, you know, not enough sample size, calling people in home phones as, so, as opposed to cell phones because who has home phones anymore? You know, th those kinds of things. There are problems with the polls. But mm -hmm. um, if you believe the polls, the polls are not uh, totally without merit. They have they do say something. Then uh, I think Biden probably is the best candidate in terms of beating him. Uh, and I don't know, though, if Biden will get the nomination because... I think uh, Sanders is giving him a real run for his money. But if it is Sanders, I don't know if Sanders will win because I think he is perceived to be so far left mm -hmm. that he's going to have a tough time. Actually, I think that Sanders is very on message. He doesn't he doesn't misstep on his message very much. 
Just before we completely leave and go to our UK section, uh, you spent some time in Iowa. What was the mood between the kind of various competing Democratic presidential campaigns in terms of, uh, you know, in Iowa? Who do you think had the best ground game there? Who was insurgent, et cetera, et cetera? Give us a feel of uh, Democratic, uh, you know, party activists, how they actually felt things were going. I went to the Liberty and Justice dinner. uh, And so I did not see sort of the ground game. But I will say that when I was in the arena, Mm -hmm. it looked to me that um, the strongest contender at that time, so now this was in November, which is a Mm -hmm. long time ago now, uh, it was Pete. And Pete has fallen, of course, precipitously in the polls, which doesn't mean that he's not going to do well in the caucus next week. But uh, the people that I was most impressed by actually on the ground, the people that I spoke to were um, Andrew Yang's people. They were really sweet, very kind people and very, very, uh, how can I say, very enthusiastic. They were very mm-hmm. enthusiastic about their candidate. And uh I was kind of surprised to see that. And then the other very strong people actually were, again, Sanders people. They were super enthusiastic and very committed. And I was really surprised when I saw the speeches by the candidates that I saw. Uh, I stayed until halftime. I thought the most authentic candidate was Bernie Sanders. Now, again, I'm, I am not a Bernie Sanders fan, but I thought that he was the most compelling mm. of the bunch. Uh, why so quickly? What what did he say? He just uh, what, seemed, you know what, he was really authentic. So when you go and, and sit this dinner, uh, so I sat in the nose, nosebleed seats up in, you know, way up high. And mm-hmm. uh, it was like a square stage, like a boxing ring stage. And the candidate would walk in with the music, you know, the campaign music blaring. And then the candidates would basically do their stump speech, but, you know, walk all corners of the stage. And so they would do call and response and their crowd would cheer. And Bernie Sanders was the only person who didn't do that. He had a lectern, he had a piece of paper Mm. and he wrote, he read rather, he read his speech, (laughs) but he had no supporters. There were zero Sanders supporters inside the arena. They were outside because they didn't Mm. buy the tickets to go inside. Because this is, this is the other thing that people don't fully realize is that this is a fundraiser for the Iowa democratic party. So the presidential candidates buy tickets in this arena to support Democrats in Iowa, which I didn't fully understand until I went there. So basically, because he didn't have any of his own supporters, he just delivered his speech straight. And I just thought it was really good. It was good in a way that he wasn't pandering to his base. He was talking to all of us like real people. Interesting, interesting observations. Uh, Let's go now. Let's do a hop, skip and a jump go over to the United Kingdom, who um, is about to exit one of the world's most important geopolitical clubs tomorrow. It is indeed a sad issue. Sad to see a nation leaving, a great nation, that uh, all of us have given so much. I mean culturally, I mean economically, I mean politically, even its own blood in two world wars. It's in fact sad to see a country leaving that twice liberated us, twice given its blood to liberate Europe. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to make sure that the union to which they will return 
will be another union, effective and more democratic. So, and that's my last sentence as a rapporteur, Mr. President. Thank you for the support. So this vote is not an adieu. This vote, Mr. President, is in my opinion only an au revoir. Thank you very much. Yesterday, UK MEPs sang Old Lang Syne in the European Parliament as they left the body. The Conservative Party is rolling out I've Got Brexit Done merchandise with tea towels, fridge magnets and mugs on South as little as five quid. It's a bargain. Um, we've even got commemorative Brexit 50p coins unveiled. Things look great for Britain as she untethers herself from Europe. Um, how will Britain's politics, now it's free of the Brexit issue, be different? Mick, I bet you're pumped, aren't you? Free of the Brexit issue? Oh, or... yeah. It's all done. Nick, we're leaving tomorrow. It's all done. Brexit's yeah, done. Yeah, we got it done. It's done. It's finished. <laughs> we got it done. It's, um, it's, well, this famously, at the last Sex Pistols gig um, at the Winter Garden, Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnny Rotten said, uh, do you ever feel like you've been cheated? And that, that is how the uh, Brexit voters are going to feel over the next few years. You are going to see them increasingly realising that the promises were falsified and that will have huge ramifications uh, to UK politics in ways that we haven't even realised in, in the past three years because the people, Remainers, politely went out on the streets and got obsessed with 50 pence pieces and were strategically fuckwitted in the worst possible way. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. whiffed that terribly. They should they, they gave him an election which allowed him to, to get this, this withdrawal agreement over the line. Didn't have to give him that election, but they did. But those the, the Remain side have been very polite about the things. The the angry leavers are going to be so angry and angry on the streets angry when it starts to become apparent to millions of them that the things they will promise will not happen. It's already starting to happen with the fishermen who are becoming very aware that the things that they were promised about fishing rights aren't going to happen because a lot of things around fishing are actually to do with wider international law that goes beyond the EU. It's going to happen with farmers, which is going to be a huge issue. And it's going to be happen when people see that the food on the shelves starts to get more expensive over the next year. Not, not, that's not going to happen, right? That's going to be fine because we're going to be in a transition period and people are able to say, Oh, nothing's changed that much. But look from, 2021 onwards when it starts getting harder to travel more expensive to buy things um when people aren't seeing the increases in um quality of life that they've been promised there's gonna be a real backlash i think because you'll have and the other thing you'll have as well sorry to sort of be all over the place is that people like nigel farage who've done really well out of this grift they will start saying Brexit has not been delivered as it was promised. It's important for the Griff for there to be a sense of grievance. So look to people like him to fire up that grievance in a different way as the, in the coming years. It's all about the grievance. It's all about the grift, and that's going to continue. Mm. It's interesting you brought up Nigel Farage, um, someone who's never been elected to Parliament. And uh, 
kind of since the early 2000s, he's kind of moved the whole issue of leaving the EU from being a maverick one. And he's single handedly moved it into the centre stage of British politics. Um, and that cu- kind of culminates with um, us seeing the UK formally leave tomorrow to go into this transitional period. Isn't he the most influential politician of the last 20 years, Mick? And you said we won't we won't miss him. He won't go. Uh, we won't shuffle off uh, centre stage left so to speak he'll still be there um, saying that this is not the Brexit that that we uh, demanded but isn't he the towering figure of the last 20 years in UK politics we've got to give him that he's um, one of history's greatest hucksters he's the P.T. Barnum of British politics and uh, and the Brexit party were his freak show Um, a, a, a party which he has managed to ring a load of money out of while while persuading these people that he hasn't ripped them off and he has mm. ripped them off um i i i'm i'm dubious about using rhetoric like towering political figure because the man is a gut, like the man is a gutter dweller he is a an appalling human being nose to tail um so towering is not the thing that i would apply to him but yeah he's an operator mm. He's definitely been influential. He's uh, he's been influential because because the because the Conservative Party are a morally and intellectually bankrupt force, and they were able. You know, basically, what was able to happen is that UKIP first with UKIP, then with the Brexit Party, um, Nigel Farage was able to crawl inside the Tory Party and eat it from the inside. Um, That's all. You know, and and really what we what we're talking about is that is this is this is the consequence of us having a pr man for a prime minister in in david cameron a man who's who who had very few you know there's no such thing as cameronism because the man had virtually no principles and his lack of principles led to uh you know the the, the tactically disastrous referendum that has put us where we are and it's not really Farage wouldn't have been able to have this incredible influence he's been able to have without, you know, weaklings and political um, lightweights like David Cameron, a man of a man of. But but, but what Farage was able to do was to put uh, was to embolden the the right fringes of the Tory party but you know for those William Cashes those people that were always eurosceptics to put their head above the parapet and to shout louder within the Tory party uh UKIP was uh winning seats in European elections increasingly so and and that put pressure on on the right wing of the Tory party hence there were internal uh, divisions with it within the Tory party and this issue of our membership of the EU which we thought had been banished and uh, put to bed in terms of Tory party debate in the early 90s uh, reared its head again you gotta you know Farage did it he, he's the man that that won it you know he brought us to the, the to the line of Brexit yeah but he's a grifter he's a grifter it, just watch. It will always never be pure enough. It will never be pure enough. There will always be a reason that it's not quite pure enough. Why Nigel Farage needs to remain on the stage. There will be another party, the referendum party that he was talking about, um, the notions that he has about um changing the structure of the british political system it is it's it's a broader bigger right-wing project and it is an it's a fundamentally anti-democratic project which has been dressed up as a democratic project 
you know, they're already starting to chip away at pretty hard fought rights. And what's so interesting as well is when you were talking about, oh, well, what will the politics post Brexit be? Notice that the promises that were made by the Conservative Party during the 2019 election are already starting to be rolled back. Rhetoric during the election, the end to austerity. Reality now, Sajid Javid saying departments uh, need to do 5% cuts across the board. This, we are in the age of the grift. You know, we are we are under the, the, the control of, of grifters and liars in, in a way that we haven't seen in decades. It's incredible. All right. One more question to you before. And then I'm going to ask this question uh, of you, Mila. Uh, Nigel Farage, Mick. Uh, predicts that the UK's departure from the EU will be the beginning of the end for the bloc. Poland and Hungary won't be following us out the door anytime soon, will they, Mick? Um, on a scale of one to ten, uh, how wrong is he and why? Uh, no, he's probably right in in some respects. I mean, in the sense that perif- nations that are further from the centre of the power within the bloc could be chipped away by populist movements in a similar way to we have been. If you think about it, what's mad is that the United Kingdom had a veto and a huge rebate. We were massively powerful within within the EU. And it's it's something that Margaret Thatcher managed to negotiate and subsequent prime ministers managed to keep a hold on. We, we, we had enormous influence and power, you know, disproportionate to our... Um, our economic clout even within within the bloc and uh, you know the Fr- french and germans will not let go of the eu and and other nations are going to stick around but yeah hungary poland that increasingly right-wing populist in 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 their um, governments and ideas yeah i think you could you know see exit and brexit but, but if i'm victor orban you know prime minister of hungary Dan, I want to cock a snoop to the EU, but then also parade around at those EU summits because it, it gives me a stage. It gives me importance, doesn't it? So I, in effect, I, I'm Eurosceptic. I don't want to be out of this block because this allows Hungary to say that it's a great nation again. It's, it, there it is uh, doing uh, sat alongside uh, the Germans and the French, etc. But Hungary is, is different. It's, it's uh, exceptional. I don't. I I think to a certain extent, someone like Victor Orban always needs an enemy, and uh, I think yes, at the moment he is using the he's you know he turns to EU and sort of uses it as a kind of um, for kind of shadow boxing. But I think at a certain point, yes, I think he could find that he really needs to push harder and further, and that and that could lead to a to a you know, to a hexit, a more serious hexit movement or huxit movement, whichever way you want to, mm. you know, well, since we're in, in the, in the fashion of making up terrible um, portmanteaus nowadays. Uh, Mila, um, what do you think Britain's exit from the EU does to our standing throughout the world? You know, this is an interesting question. Uh, I was just really listening so closely to Mick's argument about Nigel Farage uh, eating the party from the inside. And I feel like that's a really close parallel to what's happening to the Republican Party with Trump. It's that it has been subverted in some sense from its original purpose. And they were open to that because uh, in, in the case of the UK, because of Cameron's 
major misstep to allow a referendum, but also when I would say with the American Republican Party, because they allowed the Tea Party to come in and mm-hmm. basically challenged them from the right and allowed all of these crazy right wing nuts into Congress. So uh, I think for both the United States and the United Kingdom to essentially uh, embark on a project to abandon allies is not good. And I think what's really sad about it is that uh, there seems to be this um, amnesia about the new world order after World War II, that it was in fact designed in a way to benefit the U.S. and the U.K. And here they are going away and leaving it behind. It's very interesting. And I think it's not going to pay off in the end. I think in the end, it'll just, you know, turn upside down and, and it'll be not only an abandoning, a huge abandoning act of democracy around the world, because everybody around the world is watching, but also a huge abandonment of our friends and the people that we have pulled together to have peace, to have, you know, laws with, and to find a way to prevent more war. Now, of course, there have been war the entire time since World War II, but not on the Europe, not on the European continent and not in the United States. And I think there's something to be said about that. And I don't know if we can maintain that without either one of them having a major role on the world stage. Well, I mean, we did have war. We did, we did have war in the Balkans. Yugoslavia. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, oh, yes, but, that's true. But the, but the international... But it was in Germany, France, England. Yeah, exactly. You know. and, and the Balkans, as opposed to being the crucible for a, an escal- a, a wider continental escalation, the, you know, the international order helped to contain that war and ultimately end it so that's you know the point is well taken let's stay with this point about the u.s and the uk um the u.s uh treasury secretary says he's optimistic that a deal can be reached with the uk this year for closer economic alignment is that basically where geopolitically economically the two countries are going or is a disagreement over Huawei a sign of things to come? Let's go with you first, Mick. Let's specifically deal with 5G, Huawei and security concerns and the fact that the UK hasn't listened to the US considering uh, we want closer economic ties. Well, with Huawei, I think, it, I, think it's, um, I think it's a question of hedging our bets in the sense that um, while it's very important or, or why it's deemed very important to um, acquiesce as much as possible to the US to um, get this fantastical, mystical trade deal. Um, I think it's also a reality that we are massively financially in hock to the Chinese, massively um, uh, desperate as well to achieve trade deals with the Chinese. Um the coming power, you know, if if not already, you know, the the real uh, power. So I think uh, Huawei is a bit of a distraction in a sense. I think it's a it's it, it it's not that representative of what the US UK trade deal will look like. And I think probably behind the scenes, um, and I've heard behind the scenes that we're we're doing a lot of very mollifying noises to the US government, sort of saying, you know, we've got to do this, but. Um, and in the end, I think that uh, the UK is going to 
get absolutely shafted in that US trade deal. We will... It, the government, the UK government, will be so desperate for the trade deal to be signed that it will that it will compromise hugely in in not in tons of ways. And it comes back to what I was saying earlier on, which is it will take a while for people to realise. But farmers, um, manufacturers, all sorts of of, of of key groups within the UK will realise that the US will have got a really good trade deal, and we will have got an absolutely terrible one. But the government will tell us we got a deal. Um, and it's going to be bad. It's going to be very bad, particularly for food, workers' rights, all sorts of stuff. Uh, couldn't agree with you more. Um, we are five times smaller in terms of population size than the United States. Um, your your country uh, avowedly has this America first policy. Uh, now, Mila, um, buyer beware, Britain going into any kind of trade deal with the US. Surely, um, Mick is absolutely right. Uh, you're going to screw us over and not in a good, loving, gentle way. Probably true. But I mean, look at the US. It's also failing miserably in negotiating with the Chinese. I mean, they tell us they have a deal, but we don't really. It's almost the same, basically. It looks like we're different on the margins, but at the center, it's all the same. And this is totally a self-inflicted wound. And talking about farmers, I mean, farmers in the heartland of America, they are committing suicide because they're going under, you know, and we are throwing tons of money at them to bail them out. And nonetheless, you know, they're going to stick by their man. No, absolutely. I I forget exactly the figure which I sure, which I saw, which was how um, farmers are being bailed out because of the uh, the tariffs uh, against China. But it's uh, times uh, to multiples of much more than any um, ac- actual benefit. And the U.S. government is literally uh, propping up that whole kind of sector uh, now because of this ideological uh, fight against the Chinese. But let's move this uh, back onto domestic U.K. politics, because ultimately we're trying to map out the post-Brexit world. Uh, Mick, the Lib Dems, along with Labour, were savaged in the last election. But the Lib Dems were unashamedly the EU party. Where do they go now? Will they remain the party of Europe advocating re-entry to the EU at some point? Uh, yeah, they may well do. Um, I th- but I think uh, I think that will that would be probably unwise in the sense I, I don't I think the the rejoin thing is is going to end up seeming like the cranks position at this point because um, it'd be very hard for us to go back in now within. 10 years, I'd say, if, if not longer. What we're looking at, and particularly with the boundary changes in England to, to constituencies, potentially with, you know, increasing Scottish desire to, to, to break away from the union. And I think with a very strong potential for reunification in Ireland is that we, we were talking earlier on in the podcast, you know, about will the, is the US effectively becoming a one party state or, you know, is, is democracy breaking down? I think, the opposition parties are going to not to be able to do very much during this parliament. And unfortunately, I think structurally the electoral system is turning against them, although the demographics are shifting in the right way for them. Um, you know, there are structural issues within the, the electoral system that are really damaging. Um, so I, I don't know. I think GPS has sort of sent this up shit creek and, with uh wto tariffs on paddles we're uh, we're going to be in trouble <laughs> just very lastly 
Boris Johnson is set to deliver uh, a warning that the UK sovereignty will be the key issue above any desire to avoid tariffs and quotas with any kind of EU uh, deal, uh, Mick. That's bollocks, isn't it? Is it? Tell me why so. It's just jingoistic rhetoric. It's absolute bollocks. Like, when he actually has to get into... But won't it, but won't it set the tone for what the Brexiteers actually want do. to hear? It, it may do, but I think eventually, I think effectively the EU, in the same way that the US is going to be in terms of trade deals, the EU are going to go, here it is, uh, like it or lump it, and they will fight and, and they will give him ways to smooth around the edges in in order to try to sell it to his, you know, furniture chewing mad bastard backbenchers. But in the end, um, we have reduced ourselves to this tiny island you know squatting in the atlantic right and we're just not going to be able to do that because the when the reality hits that you know they keep talking about oh w lots of nations trade on wto terms but you know we've got so many industries fundamentally balanced on just-in-time manufacturing that will fall apart and when he, he has to address the realities of it rather than the fantastical because the thing about this whole get brexit done thing is it has been an abstraction in a sense it's like oh you know we've we've got it done but now they're actually gonna have to do it and get into the the, the nuts and bolts of this it isn't going to be possible to do it without causing massive economic vandalism and the tories are going to have to compromise and pretend they haven't that's all it'll be it'll just be pretending they haven't uh, Mila, let's have the, the last word with you because I appreciate in this section uh, I haven't come to you much. Uh, Mick says uh, Britain has reduced itself to a small uh, pebble squatting in the Atlantic. Um, is that ultimately the way that Brexit is going to be written from an American's point of view? Hmm, that's a good, an interesting question. Well, from my point of view, I think yes. But in terms of maybe the administration's point of view, probably not, <laughs> you know, because I think, uh, you know, Trump really quite likes uh, Boris Johnson and uh, he quite likes uh, Nick Farage. So I think he will have very different reaction and it will take, as Mick says, some time before everything kind of, all of falls apart if it does. So um, as long as things look stable, Nobody will say anything. And when it starts falling apart, it depends on what happens with the, the, whoever is in power in the U.S. Uh, on how it will decide to deal with it. You know, because like you said, the population is five times as small. Uh, and so it is going to be very, very difficult to have something that's an equitable agreement. And so they'll just do whatever they want to do, the U.S. government, in terms of trade deals. And they'll just say, oh, you know, it's no longer part of a bigger block within the EU, so we can just do whatever we want and we can dictate the terms. On that um, highly optimistic note for Britain's future, we go on to our takeaways of the last seven days. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time where we uh, throw politics to one side and we talk about something which is... um, humoured us, interested, interested us, or made us ponder about man uh, and our place in, in the universe. So, um, as always, whenever we have a new pundit on the show, we turn to them first, we put them in the hot seat, we make them sweat. Mila, tell us what your takeaway has been in the last seven days. In the last seven days, my takeaway has been that uh, people are actually really paying attention to the trial in the senate and i was not sure that people would do that so my takeaway is that people are paying close attention you i said to you off mic this is not politics you've got something which is non-political this can be anything you want this could be the smile that you saw on your little one's face as you drove them to school and how it made you feel as somebody who is uh you know bringing up the next generation of Americans to take a grip of the country. Anything you want, no politics. That's all. That's the okay. only No that. politics, no politics. Yeah. Okay. No. Right. Well, I was at a wrestling tournament on Saturday and uh-huh. when my son almost lost, but pulled it together and won with a pin of the opponent, he flexed his muscles in victory and that made me smile. <laughs> How long has your little one been wrestling? He has been wrestling for three years. He's in 10th grade. And so this was a very, very tough match. Uh, and uh, he pulled it off somehow. The wrestling was very good on Saturday. And some some wrestling tournaments are not as good. But this one was very spot on. And also, the mm-hmm. other really great news about this weekend and the wrestling tournament is that his school won the wrestling tournament for the first time in 18 years. So that was extremely exciting. Wowza. Uh, props to the school. Well done. Uh, Mick, over to you in Limehouse. Um, yeah, I just want to recommend an album. Um, it's um, it's by uh, an artist called Ethan Nesta Francis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called um, Land of No Junction, and it is uh, just just a, a brilliant debut album. It's um, very uh, just dreamy and drowsy and kind of um it has something of the cocteau twins about it or about of just this kind of what it's interesting about is is one of these records that feels like it could have just popped through a wormhole from sort of any time in the past 40 years Mm -hmm. and yet not feel like some kind of you know retro kind of retread 
thing. It just seems to have this sort of classic timeless quality to it. And it, I think in a in a political and social context of, of life feeling very sort of oppressive and constant, it's a quite nice, um, you know, sort of almost like a by water you can float down. So yeah, that it's a great record. Uh, uh, you you had me at Cocteau Twins. Yeah, it takes me back to listening to John Peel in the 1980s all over that so I'm going to give that a listen and uh, it allows me to have a quick uh, diversion to say that this isn't actually my takeaway of the week but um, you might appreciate this Mick if you don't already know uh, Vox uh, the US kind of media company have a great channel on YouTube called Vox Pop so V-O-X then Pops and they go they do a deep dive into things like pop music's falsetto uh, obsession or they deconstruct rapping or why disco made songs longer utterly brilliant totally compelling they last for anywhere between 8 to 15 minutes um a great uh, mishmash of um, people who absolutely know their topic but then also we kind of like the great graphics so box pops um is that and that's and you made me think about that when you when you talked about the album and definitely like i said before as a as a fan of the cocteau twins just the sound the eeriness of the sound of the cocteau twins um, i'm all over that but actually my, my takeaway is i've binge watched uh for all mankind it's on apple tv and you can get free Apple TV for a year uh, if, if you sign up. So everyone's signing up and then diarising then, you know, to, uh, to then, then to uh, come out the service, you know, one day before they have to then pay for it. I have, I've always been in love with the space race ever since I was a little kid. And I'm totally enthralled to 60s fashion as well. So I've always loved uh, those movies of uh, great men, stress on the word men, doing daring things, going up into space uh, with that 60s aesthetic. And we've had so many films, it's Apollo 13, or there's numerous American films which are set in the 1960s, do the space race in America, going to that final frontier. But then everybody just looks great. And it's always bright sunshine because they, it was Houston and in, in Texas where a lot of this stuff actually happened, etc. For All Mankind is actually an alternative reality where the premise is that, uh, yes, the Russians have had the first man in space, the first satellite in space, the first woman in space. But they've also beaten the Americans by putting the first man on the moon. And then it's a ramification of what happens to American society seen through the prism of NASA. The whole thing does a, a bait and switch round about episode four. It goes from being a very uh, traditional view of the 1960s and the space race with handsome men and with wives that bake to being something else completely different at the end. And... I soldiered through the first four episodes because I like this stuff anyway. But by the end of it, by episode 10, it's not at all where you expected it to be. Uh, so I won't tell you what the what, uh, the great switch is, but, but it's a very good one. But I'll give you enough hints. Um, so uh, for all mankind, it's not going to change your life, but it's in- incredibly enjoyable if you can get through the first three to four episodes which are are a little bit turgid but then it does completely turn on its ear mick wright we haven't heard from you in i think over a year sir so why don't you remind people where they can find your good works on the internet Uh aha good works hey (laughs) 
I don't know about that. Um, at Broken Bottle Boy on Twitter, that's the place to find me. Um, if you should so wish, if you have such masochistic tendencies. Well, I, I, I've been seeing your poetry on Instagram. I, I've, been, I've been enjoying it. It's no accounting for taste, but yes, thank you. <laughs> and how about you, Mila? Uh, tell people about your podcast and where else they can catch up with you online. Future Hindsight, uh, you can find it on futurehindsight.com or anywhere where you listen to your podcast, where you like to stream. You can follow me on Twitter at Mila Atmos or at Future Hindsight, which is spelled F-U-T-U-R underscore hindsight. Uh, I couldn't fit the E in, unfortunately, but uh, come and listen to us there. It's a podcast about civic engagement, and I interview activists, academics, everyday people who spark basically citizen involvement and investment in civic life smashing and of course um if you want to put yourself through badly spelt tweets uh, i suppose you can follow me on twitter where i'm at royfield but i recommend you don't do that because there's absolutely no point uh because all i do is post pictures of my mum who's become a, a reader in in the church of england uh, and things like that so if you're into seeing pictures of my family go follow me on twitter um however i do do a whole plethora a whole smorgasbord of, of other podcasts there's a thing called map corner which indulges my passion for maps funnily enough uh, there is dumpty dum uh, which is my which uh, feeds my uh, love of of the archers. Ten American presidents. We, I put out a new episode uh, of that just Friday of last week uh, with a guy um, who's got a very interesting theory about the presidential cycle of um, how America uh, elects its presidents. So listen to that. Um, intelligent speech. Um, we're not going to be bothered. I put out a show where I speak to somebody who I find incredibly impelling and, and, and interesting. And um, I just record them and we have a chat and I put that out. So you can listen to Intelligent Speech. I'm probably... Oh, then there's the things that made England. Uh, I'm black. I'm British. But I was born in England. Uh, quite like the place. Know a little bit about it. And I, I sit down with my friend David Crowther and uh, we talk about cultural things historical things which go to make england unique but not in a horrible jingoistic right-wing nationalistic point of view it's incredibly inclusive so if you want to hear about the the uh, the inclusion of scar and how that helped to redefine the first generation of non-white immigrants coming into the country in the 1970s you can listen to that on the things that made england that's me that's been us this has been mid-atlantic um it's been nice having you back mick nice to be here man thank you for having me and it's good to have my new best friend, Mila Atmos, from New York, um, giving us her opinions on um, how Britain has just reduced itself to a pebble in the middle of the uh, Atlantic Sea. Hey, hey, yeah. that wasn't me. That was him. I just agreed. Then, <laughs> exactly, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's lovely to have you on uh, <laughs> folks we are at mid-atlantic show on twitter remember um we have had uh, telephone calls into the show uh, recently or speak pipe message into the show if you want to rebut or agree with anything that you've heard on today's show why don't you go on to midatlanticshow.com hit the speak pipe app uh, tab on the right and then I'll record a two minute message from you and we'll get you on a future show um, hopefully we'll be hearing from Mila and Mick again soon take care be good to everybody um, you know what we're leaving the EU but it's not all quite doom and gloom somehow things are not quite as bad as they seem you can't predict yourself
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.